0: Ladies and gentlemen, hello. Um, Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. I am Christopher Martin Burns, joined this week by my guest, Mr. John Allen, um, general partner of Coddle Creek Capital down in Charlotte, North Carolina, or Kannapolis, North Carolina, I should say. How are you, John?
1: I'm doing well, Chris. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on the podcast. Delighted to have you here, my friend.
0: Um, I... uh, been working with you for for a little while um not too long but i i came and came and visited um came and visited your facilities down in north carolina a couple of weeks ago and was blown away by what i saw was incredibly inspired by um the work you're doing the fund is doing your portfolio companies are doing um and was inspired by your story um you know, your, your drives and, and, and where your focuses are, um, and how I guess different you are to most life sciences funds in my mind. Um, because the, the amount of, the amount of added value that you can bring, um, is, is quite extraordinary. So I wanted to have you on here, um, and kind of put your story out to a wider audience Um, I think it's a very interesting one Um, And uh, yeah, I I think it it deserves some light shone on it So, um, very pleased to have you here Um, And would like to maybe start with just winding it back to the beginning And and talking about just your story, personally um, Where you grew up, how you got to where you are now Um, Mm -hmm. and then we can, we can dive into talking about Coddle Creek.
1: Great. Well, I am, um, I'm, I'm, uh, a Southern boy in, in U S terms. So I grew up in the South and I grew up in a, um, small Southern state called South Carolina, uh, um, in union, South Carolina. And my father was, um, part of the cotton industry, um, mill industry in South Carolina. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, so, um, so I, I like to say I grew up on the cotton trail, um, <laughs> and, um, so my father had done a, a variety of jobs with a, a large textile manufacturer in, in South Carolina called Milliken, And, um, I, I, had the privilege of, of really growing up in a, 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 a state that, um, had a A number of challenges, but had a number number of opportunities um, relative to kind of its underlying manufacturing base and so forth. So we we saw with um, NAFTA, frankly, the destruction of a lot of manufacturing base. And so that included the textile industry. So that really impacted um, South Carolina. It also impacted Kannapolis, North Carolina, uh, the current city that we're in. We actually had the largest layoff in North Carolina history in Kannapolis. It was the old Philcrest Cannon Mills which is a world-famous mill for some of the beautiful towels that they used to make, as well as other uh, fabrics and so forth. And um, growing up in South Carolina, I had the privilege of going to Wofford College, which is a small liberal arts college in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which is actually the headquarters of Millican, and um, I majored in chemistry. And uh, the name of my chemistry building was called the Millican Science Building. So it was funded by Mr. Roger Millican, the owner of the mill, Right. Uh, our, our mills. And um, so I, I grew up in South Carolina, um, went to Walford, majored in chemistry, and then after college um, went to work with uh, a pharmaceutical company called the Upjohn Company. And so I did a variety of jobs I- inside of um, Upjohns, sales, sales marketing, across a broad catalog of women's health care, um uh, primary care drugs, etc mm-hmm. and uh, i had a biochemistry uh, professor dr scott mara who was evangelizing me back in the late 80s and early 90s hey you've got to go into biotechnology and <laughs> at the time i didn't know what biotechnology was but i was um uh, just dumb enough to try to follow his, his <laughs> advice so he wanted me to go to work for these small companies like genentech with 48 employees and amgen with 24 employees and yeah. so i started um putting fellows out there trying to make a break into biotechnology, and in the mid-90s finally got a break um, with a a small firm out of San Diego. Now, Chris, you you know San Diego is a biotech hub. When I was in San Diego, it was not a biotech hub. Um, As a matter of fact, the the company that I was with, Agron Pharmaceuticals, was the first profitable biotech company in San Diego County. Yes. And so, so you, you, you know, you basically
0: oh, yeah. started it all.
1: Well, I, I didn't start it. I, I went to work with five professors out of the University of California that had really developed some interesting technology around rational drug design, uh, computational chemistry. Mm-hmm. And so today we do a lot of drug discovery on uh, the computer. We call it in silica uh, development. And we were the first first drug that was uh, ever developed on the computer that was approved by the fda and we had targeted at that time the um hiv so you're too young to remember when hiv was a death sentence but for those in our audience who remember magic johnson and greg luganus mm-hmm. and how devastating um hiv was because it was it was a death sentence everybody died usually seven to eight years after contracting it yeah. and um Standard of care was AZT-D4T or uh, AZT-3TC, and then we were part of the triple cocktail revolution. So our company developed a product called Nelfinivir. the brand name was Firicep, and I was the first person hired in the field-based commercial operations to help build a sales team to launch that drug. And we uh, wound up getting uh, that drug approved and then wound up having the largest biotech launch ever at the time, so we did 335 million first year. That's since been eclipsed by a number of biotech companies, but at the time, for a small biotech company that decided to compete against Roche Abbott, and Merck, which also had protease inhibitors, and for us to be fourth to market and win 59% market share first year was a big accomplishment for for our team. I'll say,
0: <laughs> I will say, you are you are a, you are a hero for doing that, John. Um, I think I speak, well, on, I speak on behalf of everyone in the world for saying that.
1: Well, I was delighted to be a participant in a revolution that Peter Johnson, and, who was the chairman and CEO of the company, and, and others had put together. So, you know, I, I I learned a lot through that experience. And, you know, when you look back, you make some, you know, pretty good money, uh, particularly on the options and that type of thing. But the, the memories you have are really the, the lives that you changed. Of course. And one of the interesting things that we did at, at Agaron is we had a preceptorship at San Francisco General Hospital. And we had our cells reps go through that so they could interact with patients. And by the time we had launched our drug, a number of the patients that we had precepted with had passed away. And a, a number of the patients were able to go on our therapies um, and then wound up having stable disease afterwards. So it was a real blessing to, to see patients um, extend their life. And um, the first month, we put 89,000 patients on our drug. So it, it was a big deal. And lots of good memories, lots of great relationships from those times at, at Agaroth. Yeah, that's
0: incredible. It's incredible. I'm curious about the approval process um, that you went through for that. Like, what was the, I presume the appetite with the FDA must have been like, let's get this through as quickly as possible at the time. Um, or did you still come up against a lot of the same hurdles that that, that many do now when they're trying to get stuff approved?
1: Well, one of the distinctions of nelfinadir, and, and I believe that th- this is the, key, the case even to today, that from, from what we call bench to bed, okay, so from the first time the molecule was physically made, mm. right? So when a molecule is made on a computer, it doesn't mean that we can physically make it, <laughs> right? Um, so we've, we've got to make the molecule to the time that it's at bedside or approved by the FDA, to date, is still the fastest approval ever from the FDA. It was three years from the time that we was synthesized to the time it was approved, and so I was real proud to be part of of, of a team that had success both in a quick FDA approval and mm. then had a spectacular approval and adoption in the marketplace.
0: Extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. Um, so, from from there, um, did you did you move on, um, kind of? After it was in the market, or did you stay? Did you stay in San Diego? Um, how? I mean, how? What? What happened between then and you getting getting back to the Carolinas?
1: Yeah, so I commuted to San Diego. I, I managed the, the the southeast region to start with on the sales and marketing side, and then was promoted um, after after I, in my um, fourth year was promoted. Had our uh, medical science liaisons that were responsible for phase 3b and phase 4 research Which is where I really got introduced to? more the clinical development side of the business and so I had the privilege of working with some uh, Really smart liaisons that were helping us develop commercial studies and our group interacted with Harvard Hopkins Stanford all the major you know tier 1 research institutions and we prosecuted uh, research that we felt like were answering important commercial questions so um, and then after that uh, we were we were bought um, I was there for six years and we were bought by Warner Lambert for 2.3 billion dollars and then nine months later we were bought by Pfizer so it, it's it wound up being a Pfizer asset, still a Pfizer asset to, yeah. Um, today yeah on one that has appreciated
0: in value, I would, I would hasten to add. So it continues to be a success story. Um, okay, so let's move on to Coddle Creek Capital. Um, and again, let's start at the beginning. How did you start the fund? Where did the idea come from? Um, talk us through. Talk us through that and how how it fits really in quite an extraordinary way um, with the research campus that you're based on um, and the local area in general.
1: Yeah. So so after um, after we were bought by Pfizer, um, I, one of my dear friends, a guy I went to college with, uh, was a, a, a broker and um, with Smith Barney mm-hmm. and. Uh, and the consulting group services uh, which primarily worked with high network families and, and he had a vision that um, with the advent of technology and the internet that advisors were going to want to go independent and he knew I had an interest in finance so he asked me to come start a finance company of all things. Now, I, I was asked to start a finance company with him not because I had prowess in finance but I just happened to be his richest friend (laughs) at that time. And so he was like, okay, buddy, let's go. You got some money. You want to learn finance. I'll teach you finance and you can, you can help seed our initiative here. So he and I started. Some of that exit
0: money over here, John.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, so, so we did that. Um, I started um, uh, with, with my dear friend, uh, Greg Leakley and we, um, uh, two of us started with a, a business plan. Uh, we um, grew the company to 112 people. Uh, we started, obviously, with new assets under management, got to $24 billion in AUM, and we were building an independent family office platform. So today, the kind of the leader in that space is a company called Atapar, mm-hmm. uh, which is out of Palo Alto. But if you look at Atapar, we were 10 years earlier than Atapar, And um, so we developed a lot of tools, uh, which included... Uh, evaluating asset managers so we had 30 330 uh, basically coddle creek capitals on our platform right so we had independent asset managers that we made available to these family offices and we had a staff of six cfas that would do due diligence on the various asset managers making certain that they were holding to their investment thesis and that their returns were commensurate with the risk that they were taking mm-hmm. and that they were creating alpha So that's really uh, where I learned the craft of finance and had um, learned, really, asset management. Um, So um, I did that for eight years, and then after we sold that company, I decided to move back into uh, really what my passion is, and that's working with principal investigators, early stage, novel mechanism of actions, very interesting science. And then bridging what is called in the investment space, the valley of death. Mm-hmm. And the valley of death is the gap between uh, a new scientific discovery yeah. and commercialization. And that gap is where a lot of assets die. And that's, oh, yes. frankly, yeah, and that's so frankly, that's where we play. We feel like we um, understand novel um, mechanisms of actions. We think we understand how those can impact human health. And then, um, unlike principal investigators who've not prosecuted IND campaigns, uh, preclinical campaigns, and commercial campaigns, we really come alongside them and bring a team in to help them commercialize these novel concepts. So Cottle Creek is really interested in early-stage assets. We're typically first investor in Mm -hmm. with a number of these assets. Um, and we play active roles on the on these boards. So we're we're not passive investors We're not following larger Investors that not not that we wouldn't co-invest with some of the leaders like an arch or 5 a.m Or an atlas or Hatteras those types, but we typically like to be on the ground floor. We feel like we understand um, uh, Novel technology really well and we're specifically embedded on the North Carolina research campus because it's, it's really the hub of the areas that we're interested in. So Cottle Creek is primarily interested in six sectors. We're interested in genomics, nutrition, neurology, oncology, micro, microbiome, um, are kind of the sectors that we really focus on. Um, that's kind of code word for longevity. Now there's a lot of snake oil and a lot of promises in longevity. Um, <laughs> But there's also a lot of uh, science that's coming along in, in, uh, in the area of longevity, and we think that these um, initiatives to help extend human life and make the quality of life, particularly later in life, better, no. are, we think long term, going to be uh, genomics and nutritional-based. So w- one of our uh, primary investment thesis is that, that we have a gap in, in nutritionally dense food. And what we've learned on the campus is that polyphenols, which are like the the colors in fruits and vegetables, right? The the orange in in orange, the red in an apple, uh, the yellow in a squash, these these are polyphenols, and we've learned on campus that these largely govern gene and gene expression. And so those are important findings. And on this campus, we have um, UNC Charlotte, Duke University, NC State, North Carolina at and UNC Charlotte, and by order of the state of North Carolina's legislature, if you were a public university, you located your genomics and nutritional departments here in Kannapolis, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte. So if you get a master's or PhD in nutrition from Chapel Hill, which has the number one ranked nutritional research institute yeah. on the planet, you don't go to Chapel Hill to get it. You, you get it here in Kannapolis. And they have a phenomenal group of researchers, um, principal investigators here on campus uh, that are doing really, really amazing work at the intersection of human health and nutrition and genomics. And so that's a, those are sectors that we're highly interested in. Yeah,
0: and it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, I, I think like I think it's so early early on in. In like in the research in those areas, but there's so much potential. I think in 20-30 years' time, we'll look back on the work you're doing um, and the people around you are doing as groundbreaking um, and change the way we look at healthcare
1: uh, it, altogether. Um, well, we 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 know that molecular diagnostics is coming as a, a major diagnostic tool. You know, so right now you you, you get blood draws and you get. You know your your basic panel of chemistries lipids hemoglobin a one cs potassium electrolytes all that type of stuff well where where the world's going is typically with disease you get some type of expression prior to a disease so take yeah. lupus for example you know lupus is an autoimmune disease well we've just recently made an an investment in a company that has the ability to see a lupus flare taking place six to eight months before it actually happens because they understand the underlying gene expression that's taking place that causes the disease Mm -hmm. so in the case of many of the autoimmune diseases whether it's rheumatoid arthritis or crohn's disease or many of the syndromes that you you hear of irritable bowel um, syndrome these are caused by the immune system being ramped up when it shouldn't and so in the case of lupus the immune system ramps and it starts eating away at your organs slowly and over time that that deterioration um, that digestion of the immune system of your organs Mm -hmm. pricking at your organs um, causes a flare and in order to shut off that flare you usually use um, powerful drugs like steroids to shut off the immune system to stop that flare well if you can see it happening long before then you don't have the $40,000 hospital visit because if by the time you get in a flare, it's very serious. And so we're seeing this um, ability to measure what's going on really early in, in disease and disease states with molecular diagnostics and testing of DNA. So one of the investments that we made, actually one of the acquisitions that we made is a company called Aramid Genomic Services. And so we provide a variety of services to a, a number of clients like the Gates Foundations, the NIH, Duke University, Chapel Hill, University of Nebraska are our clients, and the, the genomics um, CRO that we own does method development for a number of biotech companies and other initiatives, and principal investigators. So we're actually engaged with working with principal investigators to help them understand how best to take their concepts and make it into a laboratory development test and ultimately a CLIA test that can be used uh, by physicians to look at disease much earlier. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see a lot of improvement in and the diagnostics of oncology. We're already seeing that with liquid biopsies. We're going to be seeing a revolution in the dementias like Parkinson's and um, um, Alzheimer's. Uh, we're working very closely with a couple of Alzheimer's companies. We're working very closely with a Parkinson's company. And these um, involve molecular diagnostics where we're able to more rapidly and earlier detect that something's going on and then use these discoveries that we're finding in the genes and what the genes are expressing that are causing these various diseases, how to shut off those expressions. And one of the things that we're highly interested in is the role of nutrition in impacting gene and gene expression. So one one of the researchers that we follow is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Bruce Lipton, mm-hmm. and Dr. Lipton was at Stanford in the '60s, uh, was part of the team that was actively involved with um, understanding um, RNA, DNA, gene gene expression. Early on, he actually coined the term epigenetics. So epigenetics is a term. Epi is a is a word that means above. And, and the the, coin, the, term, the term that he coined was epigenetics, which means what turns the gene on and off. Right. And he actually discovered what turned the gene on and off. So what he did is he took a, a naive stem cell. So a stem cell is unique in that it can become any other cell in your body. It can become an eye, eye cell, a hair cell, a skin cell, liver cell, whatever. So he took a, a, a single stem cell, cloned it, and... 50,000 copies in three different Petri dishes and then manipulated the medium of the Petri dish and he grew bone tissue, heart tissue, and skin tissue, Mm -hmm. and he looked at his colleagues and said, you guys think that the DNA or the genes control everything. And I tell you, it is not the gene at all that controls what's going on. It's the environment that the gene is in. And that's an important concept and that's part of our investment thesis is you need to understand that genes don't express accidentally they express because of the forces or the environment that they're in so what's the environment that your genes are expressing in the environment that your genes are expressing in is the quality of your blood yeah and what's the quality of your blood it's what you drink what you breathe what you eat and what you think so it's very important for us to have clean water clean air be careful what we're exposed to be careful that we eat ripe fruits and vegetables and be careful what we think because what you think the brain is the most complex pharmaceutical manufacturing plant in the world and so if you take a kid that was in afghanistan shot at for a year and bring them back after being at war for a year and they're dripping catecholamines like epinephrine and norepinephrine because they're having PTSD and they're having nightmares at night, that shuts down gene expression. It shuts down growth hormone, and it shuts down the production of stem cells, the stem cell production that are in your bone marrow, and that causes disease. So what you're thinking, what's going on in your brain, actually can cause physical disease. Yep. And so, so those are important concepts to know, and those are areas that we're highly interested in. And we think that the earliest indicators now are going to be the ability to precisely measure DNA and RNA expression. And so we, we think that we, we bring some value from an investment thesis because we're actively involved with that, with an asset that we own at AirMed Genomics Lab, and we have a lot of principal investigators ac- across, the, ac- ac- across the globe that we work with.
0: Yeah, um, it's it's incredible stuff. And I think, like, like I said before, I think in in a couple of decades' time, um, because of a lot of this work, human beings may well be a, a kind of another level of consciousness um, and and physical health and mental health than we are now. Once people start to become more, and some people already are reasonably aware of this, and and so on. But once we start to become more aware of this and how we can really. Optimize our brains and optimize our bodies to be like it's a, well to be a, a higher level of, of of existence I guess than we are now um, maybe that will be the link to us starting to understand how to use our brains more fully um, and everything opening up and the next stage of evolution maybe even even occurring it's yeah. big stuff but it's but it's it's very possible it comes at what? it comes at treating um it comes at treating healthcare as from a completely different angle than i think a lot of western medicine have done where which is prevent which is like a reactionary approach when we get sick um rather than looking at preventative measures um and how we live in the environment we live in um as being like Essentially, the well, the, very much the most important thing. But if you can get that, if you can get those pieces put together right, who knows? Um, who knows what's possible with the human body and the human mind?
1: Well, we, we know that uh, genes expressed uh, very well to uh, a good environment, and, and we, we understand the power of the genome. So, precision-guided medicine is here. There are a number of precision-guided medicine companies that use the gene to determine what therapy is best, what approach is best. This drug will work if you have this DNA signature. This drug won't work if you have this DNA signature. So doctors are learning how to use uh, precision um, data from the genome in order to best treat patients that are sick. Yeah. However, the idea of precision guided nutrition hmm, has been we can say a bit of snake oil. There've been a lot of claims around um, uh, nutrition and genes and wellness and so forth. Yeah. But most people haven't tied that definitively to outcomes. However, we, we did make an investment in acquisition of some technology at, a, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and started a company called SNP Therapeutics. It stands for Single Nucleotide Polymorphism. So nucleotides are the building blocks, the bases. In DNA. There's 6 billion bases in your DNA, and they make up 25,000 genes totally. So you have 25,000 genes that can express, and those genes, when they express, they express a complementary DNA that then makes a messenger RNA. That messenger RNA then is read by a polyribosome that then makes proteins. Mm-hmm. So you have your genes. Encoding for enzymes um, that then do metabolism. And so it's genomics, proteomics, and metabolomics, which are really the, the three omics that are a big deal that a lot of folks are looking at. Now, in the case of SP Therapeutics, what we were able to demonstrate, or our researcher that we partnered with was able to demonstrate, was that there are certain enzymes that are needed to make certain nutritional items like vitamins or minerals mm-hmm. and so forth effective in the body. So you take vitamin B9 for example, folate. Vitamin B9 is needed. However, folate is not active. It has to be metabolized. Right. And so there is an enzyme that adds a carbon onto the folate, it's called, Now it's called methylfolate, so a methyl group is a carbon with some hydrogens around it, and now it's active. Well, if you can't make that gene that adds that methyl group, that's a problem. If you can't take choline, for example, and make acetylcholine or phosphonylcholine, if you don't have the enzymes that do that, that's a problem. So what we were able to do is, Steve, Dr. Steve Stevens Izel, the researcher that did discovered these discoveries, was able to identify certain diseases that were caused by a patient's inability to make certain enzymes because they had mutations or mutants or variants mm. in their DNA. Right. And so we definitively tied this back to four disease states using knockout models where we knock the gene out in animal models, and indeed the very disease that Steve thought would take place would take place, and then you feed the, 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 the subject the correct nutrition, and it corrects. So if you're having an issue with choline and you need phosphodylcholine, or you're having an issue with folate and you need methylfolate, we can give you the methylfolate and the, the issue that's, or the disease that's in progress can be arrested. So it's really fascinating. So we're moving beyond precision guided medicine into pre- precision guided nutrition, but based in the science that you have a disease that's caused by your inability to do what's called one carbon metabolism or add the methyl groups. Yeah. And we're able to. just like precision guided nutrition I mean precision guided medicine give the right medicine to solve the problem in this case we can give the right nutrition to solve the problem because indeed it's a nutritional issue Mm -hmm. not an issue that's going to be solved by drugs per se
0: Mm.
1: incredible
0: absolutely incredible Um, so I would as I intimated at the start like I would say not only some of the work that your existing portfolios or portfolio companies are already doing um, but the potential that you have to incubate, accelerate, add strategic value to, add like collaborative value to, from a scientific standpoint, your collaboration with research facilities and universities around you is nothing short of extraordinary, John. I think like there's 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 I, my I, you know, there's certainly room for more down there. I think if you you know looking at looking at investments into uh, new portfolio companies. You know, if if they want to make the move over to Kannapolis, um, you know, the the value that you can add to people is extraordinary um, without having to, you know, build whole new labs, whole new facilities, whole new research relationships with different universities, wherever they may be. You've literally got it all right there. And that is so unique um, for a fund to have. Like you're not only offering capital you're offering so much more value add um,
1: yeah so 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 we are active managers in, and yeah. in, in in I think maybe I'm usurping you here with your thought but maybe, maybe I can run for just a second on on this thought so we're active managers and what we mean by that Chris is that that we're not going to just make a... An investment and be passive so we're investing in early stage companies and we have a number of of drivers one of them is that we'll have the principal investigator participate in the company Mm -hmm. but we won't have the principal investigator run the company Mm -hmm. we want a commercial team running a commercial enterprise The, the, the second thing that we do is once we do the seed investment we require the commercial CEO to start soliciting strategic investors before we go out for our A-round. And the reason that's important is we feel like we have a really good handle on novel mechanisms of action, and we feel like we've got a pretty good handle on whether or not there's a large commercial marketplace to support a, a commercial effort with this particular technology. Mm. However, the real validation of that is somebody that's already making a living in the sector that you're trying to move into. So. You take, for example, s and Therapeutics. Yeah. We seeded the company, and then we've had the good fortune of six uh, major players in, in the sectors of nutrition and genomics um, co-invest with us. And, and one of them is a very large company called Balchem. is uh, the largest producer of choline in the world, and a lot of the research that Dr. Zeisel focuses on, choline and choline metabolism and and if there, are de- the deficiencies in choline metabolism what diseases is cause? so clearly there's an interest from bowel in in regards to their selling of choline yeah and so that's really our approach we 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 are hopeful not to make bad investments but we, we we think that because we're early there's certain risks that are involved of course but we think that that having a strategic come alongside this really validates that there is a commercial marketplace and then the focus really is on can you deliver the product and service so in the case of S P Therapeutics for example we spent two years doing the, the molecular diagnostic development of the test and got it scaled and now we're in the preliminary um, scale of the sales and marketing effort with that particular um, molecular diagnostic test we're super excited about it As
0: well, you should be. Um, Yeah,
1: it's it's a great model, Um, and
0: as of course, high risk. um, But you are genuine early stage investors, which is great to see. um, Because, like you say, that valley of valley of death, you you call it. um, It's
1: called the valley of death. That's correct.
0: Valley of death. It is a bloody great chasm. Sometimes, the amount of things that fall down um, before potentially amazing things can come to market um, is amazing. We,
1: we, we have two assets right now um, that both principal researchers uh, tried to start a company. Right. And on, on both occasions failed. And, and one of the things that typically you have, we, we have to explain to principal investigators is that the investment community, of which you and I are part of the investment community, we represent mm-hmm. the investor. Mm-hmm. And while these principal investigators are brilliant, and in the case of both of these principal investigators that we're currently working with, one with some spiral steroids that we'll maybe talk about in a few minutes, and with Dr. Steven Geisel, with the the, um, S&P Therapeutics, investors want commercial people prosecuting commercial plans. And so that's why we bring in a commercial team at the beginning beginning and that's very very important it is because because investors expect that you understand not only how to deliver a product but how to sell the product this business is real simple you you have to be able to scale your product or service delivery and you have to be able to scale the selling of that product and service delivery yeah getting to the scaling the delivery side usually isn't the issue the issue is, can you sell it? <laughs> and so I want experts that know how to sell products involved with the company early on. Yeah. And so that, that's, that's one of our demands and requirements for us to come alongside a, a portfolio company.
0: Yeah, it's, it is crucially important, and it, it is, it's a mistake many make. And I, I, do, I do admire um, principal investigators, scientists, technical people, who do try to take the, the step of starting a company and spinning something out and trying to make it work, trying to get it to market in a big way? Um, but it is a very, very, very finite number of those people who also make good business people. Um, it's a completely different ball game, and I think you know if, yeah. if you, you've got you've got to you've got to bring in. A chief executive to go alongside, essentially, a CTO, which the principal yeah. investigator would become.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. A CTO or CSO, chief scientific officer, and yeah. and, and that's typically the case. Now there are a few, and, and we know a few, and there's um, a particularly one at Stanford that we like we we like a whole lot, Dr. Jeffrey Glenn. He's had great success. He's in his yeah. fifth startup and he's been there and done it. So there there are exceptions to that rule. But typically, when we find these early-stage assets, it's most of these folks have not had commercial experience before. So we actually had the good fortune um, a few months ago to acquire some assets. I got a call from a principal investigator at Stanford, and he said, look, I've got a friend who's been in the lab for 40 years working on some novel stuff, and I think you're uniquely qualified to take a look at it. And so this is really interesting technology. So this particular investigator – Um, when I called him, his his name's Dr. Fred Casalo. When I I was talking to Fred, Fred said, look, I found 12 new steroids, Mm -hmm. 12 new hormones. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me, right? Okay, the the reason that that's important is the Upjohn company, the first company I started with, Mm -hmm. learned how to scale the commercial manufacturing of steroids. And so I had the privilege of selling a lot of the steroids that You know today, or hormones that you know today testosterone, estrogen, growth hormone, prednisones. Yeah, we sold medrol dose packs, all that type of stuff. But they're they're essentially 74 hormones or steroids that are kind of known in the endocrine system, Mm -hmm. and no significant discoveries in the last 50 years. So when this guy said, I found you 12 new hormones, I'm like blown away, right? Because we know hormones are very powerful signalers in the body. Mm-hmm. And um, indeed, when I looked at what he was doing, these were, so, so steroids are cholesterol based. Right. Okay, so the scaffolding of all steroids are cholesterol based. This particular, these particular steroids had a choline attached to them. And because we'd already done an investment in, cho- in a choline company, we knew a lot about choline. Yeah. And so it was really unique, so I said, I asked Fred, he said, look, these are, these are choline-based steroids. I said, Fred, do they work in pregnancy? He said, how the hell do you know that? <laughs> Nobody should know that. Well, it was, I'm working with a researcher that has been demonstrating that choline deficiency impacts the IQ of a baby, okay? So that's Dr. Stevens-Eizel demonstrated with Dr. Marie Cattle out of Cornell University. They measured the serum choline levels of women during pregnancy and seven years later measured the IQ of the baby, cognitive processing of the baby, and it was significant relative to the neural cognition of the baby, Um, essentially equal to like 15 points on the IQ test with a p-value of 0.02. So the levels of choline that the mother has – during pregnancy impacts the neural architecture of the baby's brain. So when or when Fred said, hey, these have a choline attached, it was like, okay, are they working in pregnancy? He said, absolutely. He said they govern preeclampsia. Um, one of the steroids governs preeclampsia. One actually is important for um, NEC, which is a, a type of colitis that babies can get, and one is used in the ongoing neural tubal formation of the brain's uh, because it's excreted in the breast milk. And so it's it's needed. So we're currently in a in a development campaign to develop It's there are three primary targets in those areas. We'd we'd love to see a, a breast milk supplement in, including gallotropin um, Because right now, you know infamil and none of the companies that are selling uh, uh, Breast milk supplements mm. Or, or have galotropin in them, and we know that's important for neural architecture of the baby. So we do believe that, that, that we can improve the um, long-term outlook for humanity, and particularly the, the IQ of humanity by making certain that mothers get the appropriate nutrition and making certain that people are exposed to nutrition, uh, particularly highly dense nutrition, because ultimately it's our conviction That these polyphenols and phytonutrients really govern gene expression and when you have good gene expression it's really hard to get sick i i I would say that most illness can be corrected with appropriate nutrition not not all not all disease but many many diseases can be corrected with nutrition matter Mm -hmm. of fact there's a really important book that uh, dean ornish wrote um, many years ago where he demonstrated that by eating oatmeal you can actually reverse coronary artery disease and when I read that book in 1992 I was blown away because I was selling a drug for um, uh, myocardial infarction uh, heart attacks yeah and it was a, a clot blocker uh, like TPA and it was like if you have coronary artery disease you're gonna get a heart attack and it can't be reversed well he definitively showed but by eating oatmeal you can reverse heart disease and indeed when you eat a good diet you can actually reverse many many of the illnesses that we have um, including type 2 diabetes and coronary artery disease and many many other diseases yeah
0: I'm curious John because this is a very, I mean in some ways this is a very subjective topic like that what a good diet actually is. How, how would you define a good diet?
1: Well, I, I think I agree with you. I think there's um, that, that's that's uh, up for debate. But, mm. but I like to say, and this is my opinion, I, I like to say there's seven food groups. <laughs> okay? And the seven food groups are fruits, vegetables, lugans, beans, nuts, mushrooms, onions, and sunlight. Okay?
0: Let your uh, skin let me, eat
1: too. Yeah. So, so l- l- let, let me give you some antidotes around this and some fascinating oh. science a- a- around a-, a number of these issues. Most people don't, don't realize that mushrooms are unique and that uh, their metabolism isn't driven by uh, carbon dioxide. We, we know that plants ingest carbon dioxide but mushrooms ingest oxygen, and they, when you flip them over and you see the gills that they have underneath the, the mushroom, and so they're they're very unique and they have a number of phytonutrients that are very, very powerful, including a number of uh, anti-cancer um, nutrients. They're important that help Never ever need expression. Yeah, I, the other thing I, learned,
0: about- I learned a few years ago actually through a documentary called Fantastic Fungi on, I think it was on Netflix, when I watched that, I, I learned um, on there that essentially mushrooms and human beings are so similar in in how in how they're alive, and the, the like literally breathing oxygen thing, I, I presume is, is is like probably the biggest sign of that.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's rather unique, right? Yeah. So we can we can <laughs> ingest something that actually um, um, metabolizes oxygen instead of carbon dioxide. Yeah. The other thing that's fascinating is when you look at, for example, COVID. Yeah. Okay, so we, we know that COVID was an age-related disease, mm-hmm. right? And when you look at the technicalities of what does it mean to be age-related disease, so it's typically correlated with age, but more importantly, it's actually correlated with biological age, mm. and we can now measure your biological age by measuring um the caps on dna which are called telomeres so um, telomeres um, shorten every division and so there was a dr hayflack out of stanford that showed that a cell could divide about 60 times and then that the telomere is kind of like a reverse rattlesnake when as a rattlesnake gets older and sheds its skin it adds you know a rattle every year well telomeres are just the opposite every time a cell divides the telomere gets shorter and then ultimately, you don't have any more telomere left, and your DNA can be damaged. Right. So we know that there, as people get older, that their DNA and the ability for DNA to repair gets impacted. Mm. Well, that greatly impacts one of the two important immune systems, so you have really two immune systems. You have your innate immune system and your adaptive immune system. So Mm -hmm. your adaptive immune system is the immune system that treats flus and that type of thing where you create your own antibody to go attack a particular virus. And that typically takes about 10 days to work. But your innate immune system is when you cut yourself and you see this white pus come in, that white pus or white blood cells and those are a group of innate immune systems that immediately attack the virus or bacteria or fungi or whatever is going on. Mm. Well, in the case of children that have a very robust innate immune system, they typically don't get COVID.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in young adults that had very robust innate immune systems and in older people that were very healthy and had a very healthy innate immune system, they typically didn't get COVID.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not impossible, but typically didn't. Mm. But the devastating effects from COVID came because the innate immune system wasn't working correctly, which is a natural defense against a common cold, Right. a natural defense against a, a COVID-type uh, virus. And so those understandings are important relative to understanding the importance of the, the seventh food group, which is sunlight. Because mm-hmm. when you get direct exposure to sunlight, your vitamin D levels go through the roof, which support your innate immune system. Yeah. Furthermore, there's also research, recent research, this is really interesting, that if you look directly into the sun in the morning, where the near-infrared light spectrum is different, that you lower your cancer rates by tenfold. And the mechanism of action is absolutely fascinating. So it turns out that this infrared light spectrum turns on melatonin production in the mitochondria of the cell. Now, there's mitochondrial production in the brain that puts you to sleep. I mean, melatonin production in the brain that puts you to sleep, but you need melatonin during the day, and that comes from your cells, Mm -hmm. and that's largely turned on by your infrared light spectrum. So waking up in the morning and looking at the sun is good for you, and it's healthy for you. And so I could go on and on about the importance of having direct sunlight exposure. Um, And there have been a number of studies in in melanoma, in fair-skinned people, uh, people of Scandinavian descent, people that you would think would get all sorts of cancers if they were exposed to sun. And it's actually just the opposite. All the literature shows that those that have melanoma that are exposed to sun actually have a better response rate. Those that got more direct sunlight uh, during the day typically had a lower incidence of melanoma. So we consider sunlight one of the direct food groups. Now, frankly, if we really look at the energy in fruits and vegetables and nuts and mushrooms, Mm. that all ultimately comes from the sun. And the best fruit and vegetable for you is a fruit and vegetable that's been vine ripened. So if you look at a strawberry that's Mm -hmm. been vine ripened on the back of a truck where a chemical's been released and you go pick that up at your grocery store, local food market, or you go up here to Kerrigan Farms, which is about uh, six miles up here, where they let their strawberries ripen on the vine, and then you measure vitamin C levels and other phytonutrients and polyphenol levels, there is no comparison. The density of nutrition in a virate-ripened fruit is 10 to 40-fold higher. So it would be like taking a Motrin but having a generic Motrin where you're trying to take 800 milligrams, but it only had 10 milligrams in it. The fruits and vegetables that we have today don't have the amount of medicine, are polyphenols and phytonutrients that are needed to govern gene expression. So we're highly interested in highly dense food, our supplements that can replace that, that can help govern gene expression. We think those are important findings, and we're investing in those type of initiatives and the commercialization of those initiatives, and being on the North Carolina Research Campus gives us really unique insight into a number of these initiatives. Now, the National Institutes of Health last year announced that they were making a $1.8 billion investment in precision-guided nutrition. And that's being led by Dr. Susan Sumner on our campus that we have a great relationship with. Uh, She's at the Nutritional Research Institute at Chapel Hill, which we have already acquired technology from. So we're very close to this sector. So when I say that we're active investors, uh, we're active investors because we're working very closely with the people that are doing the research. We just don't read the research. We know the principal investigators, and we're interacting with them at a number of very prestigious universities and the areas that we're, we're highly interested in helping humans understand more about. And ultimately, the commercialization of these are going to increase the knowledge and the importance of appropriate nutrition, the importance of vine-ripened vine ripe, fruits. And while there's human health that can take place, so we don't have to have disease care. Now, Western medicine is very good at, at sick care, but Western medicine is not very good at keeping people well. Right, And we have all sorts of problems in our, our not only in our, our, our food channel, our food distribution networks, our food chain per se and, it, and it's not malicious, I, I just don't think fundamentally people understand what food is. And so we, we have an issue and until we describe it in a language that people understand which is our language is a language of science this campus is really codifying why fruits and vegetables are good for you and we're we're interested in making those discoveries commercially available to people to help them live healthier lives Um, i'm sure i'll be
0: very welcome (laughs) Mm. i think the
1: work you're doing
0: is incredible john um i'm still blown away by what i saw and what i experienced visiting with you um it is truly a pleasure to be working with you and supporting you and the funds and the portfolio companies and I really look forward to working with you for, for many years to come um, yeah I, I think um, we could talk all day um, but you, you probably have many things you want to be getting on with um, so I think we can wrap it up there although I would like to definitely have you back on again at some point in in, in the coming months to talk in more detail um, and and hopefully talk about um, some new portfolio companies being added as well, um, and uh, and and the work continuing. So until then, um, it's been a pleasure having you on, um, and I will uh, I'll bid you farewell. And uh, as I say, very much look forward to continuing working with you, and seriously thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I think. It should be from the bottom of everyone's heart for the work you've done in your life and the work you continue to do. You're an incredible person and thank you very much for being here and doing this.
1: Well, thank you for your kind words and thanks for hosting us and, and letting us get our story out there. Uh, we were delighted to have you on campus and and for you to experience firsthand what we have built here and how we, we think that our approach at Cottle Creek Capital and the act of management really helps uh, create alpha for our investors. So we have the privilege of working with wonderful principal investigators. We've got a wonderful campus, and the the more that we can expose it to people and investors about what we're going on, um, the the better from our standpoint. So um, for that, we're grateful, and thank you for hosting us and helping us get our message out there. Thank you, Chris.
0: (laughs) My pleasure, John. Thank you very much.
1: Bye, Bye, everybody.